Hello friends, welcome to the ATC Double Cut. My name is Michael Woods. In today's episode, it is going to be a miscellany and I'm going to talk about a few of the recent ATC blog posts that I have not yet covered on the ATC Double Cut. And it's going to range from zoysia to a very practical question about how much organic matter in the root zone is too much. And I'm also going to talk about some upcoming seminars, and I'm going to talk about a couple videos. This is not going to be a long episode, I don't think. And I'll try to talk mostly about the organic matter topic, which I know is of interest to a lot of people. So let's go ahead and get started. I will go to the ADC website and go to the blog section and look at the most recent posts. And I think the the most recent, I mean the the first one that I'm going to talk about uh, that I haven't covered yet on the ATC Double Cut is from October 2. And I'll put a direct link to this one and to all the blog posts that I talk about in the show notes. This one is has a title of An Observation About Seed Heads in Zoysia at Putting Green Height. And I get a chance to see Zoysia a lot. I get a chance to play golf on Zoysia. I get a chance to uh, see zoysia on tees, in rough, on fairways, and on putting greens. And it's interesting to me to observe the differences between different varieties of zoysia in terms of seed head production. And it's, it's something where this grass is not used in so many parts of the world on putting greens, but it's used a lot in Southeast Asia on putting greens. It's used a, a, a little bit in Japan on putting greens. For some reason, it's being used more and more in the United States on putting greens. Although anybody who's putted on zoysia will know that because of the stiff leaf blades, the ball doesn't roll quite as smooth and as true as it does on bank grass or Bermuda grass that's received the same level of maintenance. So you can get pretty good roll on zoysia, but to get that kind of roll, you have to do extra work compared to what you would have to do on Bermuda grass or on bent grass. So uh, I think zoysia grass on putting greens is a niche grass. And if you don't have to use it, you should use something else because you can get a ball roll with less work. You can get a good ball roll with less work. But zoysia is good on putting greens in the situation where you have high temperatures and where you have a lot of shade or a lot of cloud cover. In Southeast Asia and East Asia in general are areas where for some of the year or for all of the year you have high temperatures and because of the type of climate that there is in East Asia and in Southeast Asia and in tropical tropical regions around the world in general, uh, there's enough cloud cover to restrict the light to make zoysia perform pretty well. But it's interesting because some varieties, even at putting green height, will throw seed heads. And there's not been so much research about controlling seed heads on zoysia putting greens. And I've observed in Thailand and in the Philippines where zoysia just grows wild. So you, you can either have a zoysia putting green that gets invaded by other types of zoysia, either creeping in from the outside or from seeds germinating on the inside of the green. Uh, Or uh, you can just plant the 
the green with with a different type of zoysia it's it's interesting you see these different types of zoysia growing some of them will have seed heads some of them don't and i noticed this on a golf course in thailand uh back in may and i thought it would be interesting to share this photo um and this was actually on a tiff eagle green that was invaded by zoysia by two different types of zoysia and the first photo i i showed and i'm bringing it up on the screen for those of you watching it has these seed heads uh, that are a white color and they're sticking up. This, this green is mowed at you know, something like three to four millimeters, somewhere close to an eighth of an inch, maybe a little bit more. And these seed heads are white. They also are stiff and they don't just disappear. Now, if you're in a part of the world that has winter, spring, summer, and autumn that has four seasons, then you're going to have a day length that changes quite a bit. You'll have a short day, day length in winter. You'll have a long day length in summer. Zoysia makes seed heads when the day length is short. So during the summer season, you wouldn't see seed heads on zoysia typically because the day length is too long and the seed heads won't be produced. The interesting thing in the tropics when you're close to the equator is the day length is never very short and it's never very long. The day length is always about 12 hours and it varies from just under 12 hours of, of day length for about half the year. And then it's uh, a little bit more than 12 hours of day length for about half the year. And uh, this is in May, which is close to the, uh, the longest days of the year and yet there's still seed heads on this particular type of zoysia that had invaded the tifical green. So I think especially for using zoysia in a tropical environment, the, the seed heads could be a problem for six or more months out of the year. If you're doing uh, zoysia greens, let's say in South Carolina, zoysia greens in Tennessee, zoysia greens in Northern Florida, the day length is probably going to help you out with this and you'll just see a big flush of seed heads. If it is a variety that produces seed heads in short days uh, and, and producing seed heads at putting green height, then you'll just see it in the, maybe in the autumn, almost certainly in the springtime, but then as the days get longer going from late spring into summer, the seed heads will just disappear because the grass won't produce them anymore. But as you get closer and closer to the equator and the day lengths stay relatively close to 12 hours, then you really want to be careful about which varieties you're using. And this is something that I don't have a clear answer to, but just recognize that there's differences. And I think there should be a lot more research about this so that people that are using zoysia will have uh, a grass that ideally would not have so many seed heads because there's another type of zoysia that was invading this same putting green and i took that picture on the exact same day and i see zero seed heads in this particular picture that i'm showing so just right next to each other there's two types of zoysias uh, on a green some have seed heads in certain types of management and weather other ones don't have seed heads so uh, this is something as zoysia gets used a little bit more around the world. I think it's useful for breeders to be aware of this and it's useful for turf managers, people purchasing zoysia to be aware of this uh, as much as possible 
certainly on, uh, you know, for any fine surface, I think it's better to just be playing on uh, turf or looking at turf that's just uh, leaves and not so many seeds. Because the other problem you have with those that are prolific seed head producers is they produce seeds and then those seeds can germinate and then you can have all different types of zoysia growing in uh, your stand of zoysia. <laughs> so uh, minimizing seed heads is is uh, is a good thing to do. So that that's kind of a niche topic that only a few people will be interested in, but I find it to be an interesting observation. And if you do see zoysia or hear about zoysia, maybe you can remember that and think about it. And if anybody has some more information about that or ideas about it, please, uh, please let me know. Now, the, the next blog post that I'm going to talk about has a very nice title, How Much Organic Matter is Too Much? You'll find a direct link to this in the show notes. And this is a question that I think a lot of people ask, and I try not to give an answer to it. And I'm going to explain why, and then I'm going to explain why this particular blog post, I actually do give an answer. So I was giving a seminar in Nagano Prefecture in central Japan. And during that seminar, I one of the things that I talked about was managing soil organic matter, managing the total organic material that accumulates under turf grass uh, in, in the root zone, especially at the top of the root zone. So from the blog post, I, I quote here, I was teaching a seminar about the distinction between soil organic matter, humus, and total organic material, and how to make use of those test results when this question was posed. And that question was, and I, I'm paraphrasing that now, how much organic matter or total organic material is too much? When is the test result too high? And uh, I... I like people to think about things and kind of solve the problem for themselves. And so I try to teach people how to solve the problem for themselves. So I don't just want to say that this number is too high. I, I don't want to just say that 6% is, is the threshold. And so if you're below 6%, you're okay. If you're above 6%, it's a problem. I, I, I think that's the wrong answer uh, for, for most places. So I, I kind of refuse to give that answer. But then when somebody is asking me the question of how much is too much or when is the test result too high, uh, I, I can give some kind of answer because in my mind, I actually am looking at the numbers on a test result and I do have some flags or, or some numbers that will flag in my mind and kind of throw up an alarm or an alert and make me think that, okay, this, this number is a little bit high and, and maybe we should do something about it. So, um, in the blog post, I wrote that my full answer to that question is that you need to figure out that number for your site and conditions yourself using the logic explained here. And I, I linked to another post and I'll let you go to that. Um, well, let me, let me go see what it is. Uh, maximum soil, that, that post is maximum soil organic matter, not minimum should be the goal. And, and I give the logic. Yeah. I, I give the logic that, uh, if the surfaces have just the right firmness level and hold the right amount of water, 
then I want the total organic matter in the soil to stay the same over time. If the surfaces are too soft or they hold too much water, then I would like them to be firmer in the future. In that case, I want the total organic matter to decrease over time. So, so this is very logical and simple. And, and this is the solution. This is the real answer that I want to teach people that I want them to, to figure out the answer for their site. And then I say, if the surfaces are too firm or they don't hold enough water, you want it to hold more water. You want it to be softer. Then I would like to see the total organic matter or total organic material increase over time. So, uh, that, that's the answer that I really want to give. But when people are asking about a specific number, when people are asking about a specific number that they, they want to know that that's too much. Well, I can use data from a lot of turf grass sites to give some kind of answer to that. So I look this up for golf course potting greens, uh, golf course potting green turf grown in sand root zones. So there's two types of organic matter, uh, and it's based on testing methods. So soil organic matter is humus. You screen off all the thatch. You you remove all of the living and dead undecomposed plant material. You throw that in the garbage. You measure the humus. It's typical to do that. I, I recommend doing a four inch or 10 centimeter depth sample, uh, unless you've got a good reason to use a different depth. I, I think the standard depth should be 10 centimeters for turf grass and the value that puts it in the top 25% for soil organic matter on putting greens on golf course putting greens in sand root zones if you want to know what's high then anything above 1.6% humus 1.6% soil organic matter is relatively high So I wrote in the blog post, I said, when that test is at 1.6% or higher, it doesn't necessarily mean the number is too high, but it's noticeable to me that the test result is higher than usual. And uh, so with that, we're talking about the traditional soil organic matter test that that we get reported on a regular soil test. But keep in mind that this is based on a golf course potting green and it's based on a four inch or 10 centimeter sample depth. If you've got a home lawn and it's not a, a potting green turf grown in sand root zones, then it's, it's a lo- it's more normal to be 3%. If you're fair, if you have fairway soil, it's more normal to be 3%. So don't think that 1.6% or higher is unusual. If you, if you're not dealing with with what I'm talking about here, which is golf course putting green turf grown in sand root zones, so that's one number. If you if you want a number, I I say okay, here's 1.6. There's an answer, and then another one uh, that I think is really important, and this is more looking at the thatch. Let's look in the top two centimeters of the root zone and look at the total organic material. This is what you get from uh, OM246 test to get in the 75th percentile for golf course putting greens on uh, for golf course putting green samples from the top two centimeters, we're looking at a value of 9%. So 
I, I wrote in the blog post, if the OM2 is higher than 9%, you can be aware that it is higher than most other greens. I reiterate that doesn't mean it is too high, but if you want a threshold number to be aware of, 9% is reasonable. So for a regular soil organic matter test on a sample from a putting green that's gone down to a 10 centimeter depth or four inch depth, 1.6%. That's, that's a number that, that has 75% of the samples below it, 25% above. So you, you say, okay, if I'm 1.6% or higher, I'm in the top 25%. You can be aware of that. To do the same thing with the OM2, zero to two centimeter depth, you need to go to 9%. So those, those are numbers. And uh, I know with the OM2, if you're in New Zealand or if you're in the UK, for the OM2, they want that to be less than 6%. But they're, they're just saying that the number should be 6%. I, I don't see where they are taking the same approach that I am of applying the logic of if your grass is performing well and it's if the soil is holding the right amount of water and if the ball reaction is the way you want it then i'm not sure that we need to be chasing to be less than six percent if we're at eight percent and everything's fine i i'm not just going to chase after a number and say this is this is the level that we need to be below six percent uh, so I always try to link the test results to the way that the grass is performing. Um, so the number that I come up with is a little bit higher and that's based on a couple thousand samples. So anyway, we, we could have some debate. I, I know people in the UK listen to this show and I know people in the UK may be uh, really happy when they can get down to four and a half percent or something. Uh, and I don't know, is there anybody that's been at, at, uh, let's say 7% or 8% or 9% and had good performing greens? I don't know. I, I would love to hear about that. And, um, I, I don't know the, the data don't really lie on this. I I've seen a lot of, of good performing greens where, where the total organic material is, six percent seven percent eight percent so i'm just kind of averse to giving a recommendation of you have to be less than six and i just want to link it to how the grass is performing uh so uh, this should be a good topic for debate because i know a lot of people will be making their sand applications making dry jacked applications doing all kinds of things to try to bring the total organic material in the top two centimeters down to less than 6%. And, and I'm just like, okay, why are we choosing 6%? Why is 6% the threshold? Are, are you, do you really see a big difference between 5.5 total organic material in the top two centimeters and 7%? Uh, do the greens perform quantitatively better? Um, I haven't really seen that. I don't know that there's so much terrific research out there that uh, that really proves that six percent is the number. But I that's a number that's kind of out there. So anyway, maybe somebody can enlighten me about it. 
Okay, shall we move on to the next one? Uh, we are blasting right through everything that I wanted to cover here in this ATC Double Cut. I have a, uh, a, a series of seminars coming up. I'm, I'm first, I'm going to be at the uh, Finnish Greenkeepers Association Conference, which is in early November in Helsinki. And after that, I am going to Le Tour de France de Micah Woods, and I'm going to be giving my first ever seminars in France. Now, I've visited a couple golf courses in France, uh, but I haven't had a chance to sit down and talk with French greenkeepers in this type of setting. So I'm really looking forward to talking with turfgrass managers there, and I would like to thank the Semias Fito company, which is a primarily a seed company, uh, for helping to arrange this and to put on these seminars. We are going to be in Paris on the 6th of November, and then we'll, we will be in southern France on the 7th of November. And I'm going to be talking about a modern system for sustainable and site-specific turfgrass management. One of the things that I'm interested in covering uh, and trying to explain clearly, because this will need to be translated. Uh, and so when, when a presentation gets translated, I'm trying to think in advance how I can make it as as clear as possible what I really want to get across. And we're going to be talking basically about everything. So uh, I'm trying to really organize my thoughts. So this is going to be about a modern system for sustainable and site-specific turfgrass management. I was just talking about organic material in the soil and how I really want this to be site-specific. And one of the things that I think is so important is sustainable turfgrass management and sustainable turfgrass management is really about producing the best conditions with the minimum amount of inputs. And a lot of the things that I have been studying about over the past, over my career have, have involved playability, which is trying to get good conditions. It's involved turfgrass nutrition. Uh, it's involved growth rate and, and how much the grass needs to be mown. And also about grass selection and irrigation water requirement and, and that sort of thing. So I'm going to try to put it all together and try to talk about playability and MLSN and about clipping volume and growth rate and water management, soil organic matter, total organic material, grass species selection, playability, and so on. And I close this blog post by saying, how can I distill all this into a single short presentation? We will find out next month, exclamation mark. So that's something that I'm quite looking forward to. And uh, we will see how I do. <laughs> so that, that, uh, that should be fun, but it's also quite a challenge. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, the final post I want to mention real quick is, is one that's called Botanical Walks and Circle Cuts. I was in Ishigaki Island, which is in southern Japan, um, in 
well, it's 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 just a little bit to the uh, east northeast of Taiwan, and uh, I made a couple of videos there. One of them is a video that I recorded last year, which is about uh, circle mowing of a bent grass putting green where the reels never leave the ground, and this one got a lot of views. And I put a link to it, of course, in the blog post. And I think that this one is worth watching because this is something that I was familiar with from warm season grass fairways. I've seen this on warm season grass fairways doing circle cuts to try to really cut some extra grass off and to remove the grain or, or reduce the grain or to cut the grass from so many different angles. I always thought of bent grass as being a little bit delicate and and maybe I wouldn't take a riding mower and do a circle cut on it. But then I saw it done uh, at the Camiral uh, Golf and Wellness, uh, what PGA Catalunya is now called. Uh, I, I saw that in the spring of 2022, and I recorded a video, but I didn't release it until now. I didn't have a chance to put it together until now. It's pretty cool because... As I was watching that, I realized the grass can easily handle that type of mowing action. And the grass is getting a double cut, triple cut, quadruple cut at all different kinds of angles, which can be useful for dealing with grain. And the other thing, the mowing is efficient because the reels never leave the ground. There's no turns. So also, there's no traffic on the collar of the green. There's no traffic on the green surrounds. And in certain times of the year, sometimes the green collars and the green surrounds can be under a bit of stress. So it seemed like a nice way to give the green collar and the green surrounds a rest while putting a really nice cut on the green itself. That was something um, that I think you may look at. I hadn't really seen it before on bent grass. I'm sure other people do this, um, but maybe that's a technique that can be used sometime. Uh, it's pretty fast, especially if you don't bother with the cleanup cut. Like I've, uh, I think there's some opportunities to do this during tournaments, for example, if you want to uh, do like a, or, or let's say for tournament prep, if you just want to put a triplex on the green and do a circle cut for a while, <laughs> and you know you just, just do a circle cut in advance of the tournament to cut off the extra grass, that seems to me like a nice, uh, easy thing to do instead of doing double and triple cuts constantly. Um, maybe putting a triplex and doing a circle cut can be a nice way to do tournament prep and, and get rid of some of those extra grass leaves. And then, as I mentioned, I did this at Ishigaki Island, and I did a botanical walk at Ishigaki Island. I, I did a, a, a vlog, a video blog. I carried my camera around as I walked along the beach looking for grasses. I had walked along this same beach 11 years ago looking for grasses, and at that time, I was looking especially whether I could find seashore paspalum or zoysia because it's interesting for me to see what is growing wild 
and in what conditions the grasses are growing in the wild, because I think that has some bearing on how those grasses will perform as a managed turf grass. And that also has some bearing on what the maintenance requirements for the grasses may be, or how you might best maintain the grasses as a managed turf. Um, if you are trying to to produce a, a professional turf grass, a professionally managed turf grass surface with a particular species, it's useful to know where you can find it growing in the wild, what type of conditions it's thriving in in the wild, and what kind of conditions you absolutely cannot find it in in the wild. Then knowing that, it's useful to then optimize your maintenance so you can make the grass perform as good as possible with the fewest number of inputs. So I enjoy doing that. I enjoy taking these kind of botanical walks and I, I know a bit about warm season grasses so I can identify a few of those. Um, and, and so I, I tried to share that with, with you in the, uh, in that video. So if you're interested in those, definitely check out that blog post. You can get a direct link to the, uh, the circle mo video. And I would be interested, uh, if, if you have time, check out the, uh, the botanical walk and let me know if you like, if you think that kind of stuff is interesting, because if you do, uh, I can try to make a few more botanical walks, but I think as, as I get to other places around the world, for example, if I would take a botanical walk around Paris <laughs> and look at the grasses that are growing, I'm going to even struggle with some of the ID because, uh, uh, I'm, I'm less familiar with, uh, the intricacies of certain cool season grasses growing in the wild. But of course I can, uh, I can share my ignorance and, uh, and do that kind of thing, uh, and just say, okay, this is Boa annua. <laughs> this one is some type of agrostis and look at, uh, you know, what you'll typically see in, in, in cool season areas. For example, if you're, if you're climbing up a mountain, you'll often find on the trail or on the edge of the trail where it's disturbed, you will find poa annua growing, and then you can get just off the trail and, and you'll get areas that, that are less disturbed and you'll find agrostis and you will find also, you'll find some fine fescue, some festuca. So th that's something that I often see, um, and I just like to note that. And, and, and you will see like in Iceland, uh, in some mountainous areas, you'll see fine fescue growing in the same type of areas that I found the fine bladed zoysias growing in uh, this Ishigaki botanical walk video. And specifically that's in rocks, in, in cracks in rocks, in areas where they're, they're anchored into the into the earth, uh, in, in a way that stress tolerating plants that grow slowly can, um, they can persist in that type of environment. And, and so you, you'd see fescue in areas and you wouldn't see, you wouldn't see a grostis in those type of areas. So that, you know, those are the kind of things that I can, uh, you know, I'm not an ecologist and, and I'm more a, a turf grass manager <laughs> than I am, uh, an ecologist. So I, I can speak about these kind of things in a very crude way 
in a way that I feel I'm pretty ignorant on the subject. And yet, uh, it, it can be a little bit insightful. I think if, if we consider, okay, Paul annual is growing where it's disturbed. Um, Agrostis is growing where it has the ability to grow, but it has less disturbance. And then fine fescue is growing in places where uh, the the soil would be a bit, a little bit less fertile. There would be a little bit less water available on average, um, and it doesn't have so much disturbance and it doesn't have so much competition. So you know, uh, you you can hear me stumble over my words on these type of topics. And yet I think it, uh, it's interesting. It's interesting to observe how these grasses perform in, in nature. So, um, yeah, those, those are the recent blog posts that I wanted to talk about the botanical walks and circle cuts, the upcoming Les Tour de France de Michael Woods, the, interesting one of how much organic matter is too much in the soil um i i do encourage you to think about that and and check out that blog post and perhaps specifically uh whether well what do i want to say it just just think about your sand top dressing and cultivation plan and what you're really trying to achieve and think about what number you're trying to reach and then think about um i would encourage you to think about whether the number you're trying to reach is really the the right number and if you have a good reason for trying to reach that number or whether you can just consider how your grass is performing how much water the surface of the root zone is holding and then whether you want it to go up or down because it it could be in some cases that four percent total organic material in the top two centimeters for some places that might be too much i don't know um so i'm i'm saying nine percent is a number that is kind of a flag for me of like whoa this is getting kind of high it doesn't mean you can't be above that um and it doesn't mean that, that that's okay either it may be that for a fine fescue green anything above 4.5 percent just ends up being too soft I, I don't know, but this is something that I think rather than giving a single number, I really want turf grass managers to choose the number that works for their site. So that's something that has a link to that post that has the logic that I encourage people to use to determine that number. And then the, uh, seed heads and zoysia at putting green height. That's something I've I've been observing and I've been paying attention to, and I'm trying to understand more about it. And I don't really know the good controls because, uh, you know, you, you can apply growth regulators such as Ethophon, which may, uh, limit the seed head production. Although most of the research that's been done on that, that I'm aware of is on, um, reducing zoysia seed heads on fairway height turf on zoysia japonica and zoysia japonica can be grown at putting green height but it's not ideal so typically your zoysia species that are grown on putting greens are zoysia matrella or zoysia pacifica or some hybrid of zoysia pacifica and zoysia 
minima or that type of thing. You, it's a different, different species, certainly considerably different optimum growth temperatures, uh, and, and considerably different optimum temperatures for seed head production. So, uh, the, most of the research is for fairways and most of the zoysia used on putting greens now it's it's kind of a novelty in some parts of the world i think people are going to be seeing that that they do have seed heads on certain varieties and at certain times of the year so it's something that can be studied both for management uh, and for variety selection or if it's still in the breeding process uh, for for variety selection Um, so that that's something that it's probably a niche topic because most people when I've put polls out and said has anybody ever played golf on on zoysia putting greens most people answer no um, although if you would say what my home course is my home course has zoysia greens uh, my I'm in Bangkok now and, and my home course in Bangkok has zoysia greens I live in southern Thailand my home course in southern Thailand has zoysia greens uh, these grasses are ubiquitous uh so it's something that that i'm certainly paying attention to all right well everybody i have uh i have covered everything that i wanted to cover in this episode so thanks for listening and thanks for watching i will sign off now for atc from bangkok i am michael woods bye-bye